welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. It's my great pleasure to bring you Sarah Davies. Sarah is a professor of techno-sciences, materiality and digital cultures at the Department of Science and Technology Studies at University of Vienna. And overall, her research focus is on exploring how science and society are co-produced, with digital and digitization being key aspects of that. What I was particularly interested in talking to Sarah about, though, for this podcast is her research on the conditions of academic work and knowledge production. Sarah has a fascinating multidisciplinary background um, as part of her own story, and she's worked in a number of different countries and disciplines. And in part one here, we discuss her experiences with academic mobility, touching on issues of cultural differences and precarity associated with short-term contracts, and reflecting on who is able to be mobile or not and with what consequences. And this leads to discussions about how we interpret CVs and she challenges us to rethink internationalisation and notions of excellence. And just one small correction here just to note as well. Um, At one point around 19 minutes or so, Sarah says that she... um, had the longest contract she had was about two and a half years, but she actually had a contract for three years in Denmark. So just just to uh, put that on the table. So I hope you enjoy this part one of our discussion and part two will be coming out soon where we go on to discuss some of her actual research that um, she and her colleagues have been involved in. And here we touch on issues of valuing people and luck and cultures of care. Sarah, I'm so excited to be able to sit and talk with you finally, because I think we connected right at the beginning of the pandemic or around pandemic time when you first moved to Vienna. I think it was, yeah, mid to end of 2020, so almost yeah, three years. Yeah. Um, and, and you've got a really interesting, interesting story in terms of different career moves. Do you want to just introduce yourself and briefly and where you've come from and where you are now. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm Sarah Davies. I am currently a professor at the University of Vienna at the Department of Science and Technology Studies. And I guess, yeah, when you say an interesting story, I guess that is both disciplinary and geographical because I have moved around in both both ways. Um, So I started as a biochemistry undergraduate uh, in the UK, studying at Imperial in London. Um, but after some time working in a laboratory, a research laboratory, I kind of realized that, that lab work was not for me, and then I started to move into, into social sciences. So I did a master's in science communication, and then I went on and did a PhD in uh, science studies, social studies of science. Um, so I'd kind of made this, this move into into the social sciences and into the study of science rather than working mm. um, in, in biochemistry 
And then after that, I started to move around more geographically. So I did postdocs in the north of England. I left London and went to the north for two and a half years. Then I went to the US for two and a half years, then came back to Europe uh, and was working in Copenhagen in Denmark for seven years. Then I was in Norway for a little bit of time and then finally ended up in Austria. <laughs> so that is mobility yes. in, in, in disciplinary and geographic mobility senses. Going, the disciplinary um, mobility, you said that you worked out lab work wasn't for you and then you just shifted into science communication. Like what was the thinking? Because you could have shifted to lots of other disciplines. Mm. You know, so do you, do you remember what triggered that interest? Yes. Yes, very clearly, actually. I mean, I mean, firstly, I went to my undergraduate degree really thinking I was going to be a scientist. You know, I was really mm. like, this is my, my vocation. I'm going to cure cancer. You, you know, really, I'm going to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, I had, I think, a very idealized version of the, the biosciences. And then I was working in a research lab in my summers and just, yeah, I, I just was not very good at it, I have to say. I was mm. very... You what know, aspects? Like you, you have to be quite manually adept in the laboratory, and I was clumsy. I would kind of drop things. I, it was very boring, I have to say. If you're spending a lot of time working in a fume hood, pipetting, I didn't like working. We we were a, a lab that worked with animal models. I didn't really like doing that. Um, and I was also struck by how much like a normal office it was. It was not this ideal space of inquiry and, uh, you know, collective endeavor towards the, the good. It mm. was an office where people quarreled over coffee and mm. who took the milk out of the fridge. And, and mundane, boring work. Yeah. So yes. where do you think your idealized view of science came from before? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess partly from the school science that we learn which is idealised in that it takes away a lot of the, the messiness. And mm. I guess also from mm. really terrible Hollywood films where <laughs> scientists are either heroes or uh, mad. Mm. <laughs> of course, I would have been the hero. The, the hero, of yeah. course, yes, Nobel Prize winning hero. Um, I'm curious about your family background. Did you have academics in your family or scientists in your family or extended family? No, no, no not at all. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't something, uh, kind of research culture, science wasn't something I'd had a lot of mm. contact with. It's fascinating how we make decisions and then you know, the, the, the ideals and the realities mm. confronted mm. with the realities. Yes, and, and I guess I should also say about the move into science communication, uh, one very important moment for me while I was doing my undergraduate degree, uh, I had done... So Imperial is a science university. It's very much like mm. we do science here. Um, but they made... Uh, students take a compulsory humanities course, which was one hour a week for one term, I think. So this was not a very in-depth engagement with social science or humanities, but I had done a course on science media and society and, and actually hugely enjoyed it at this kind of time when I was realizing that I didn't really like lab work. Uh, and I also found it incredibly exciting. I had this moment 
where the teacher was talking about scientific writing uh, and the way in which we write journal articles and the fact that this was a genre um, and that, you know, science writing doesn't have to be in this particular style. And I had never, I had read articles um, as part of my degree uh, on paper because it was early enough that we didn't really do stuff uh, on the computer. But I had never, I'd never even considered that this was made by particular choices and contingencies, that there might be other ways of writing that, for instance, that everything that I'd read was written in the, um, either in the passive voice or in this collective um, plural, we mm, did this, yes. um, this was done. And we were talking about this in this course that I was taking, and this for some reason just totally blew my mind. Okay, this is, this is not given, it is not universal or just the way that things have to be. It has been shaped by the history of science and the history of scientific dissemination. And this fascinated me and kind of brought me on this path towards the social study of mm. science. There's an interpretation of that as well that says that that sort of writing removes the messiness. You know, you talked about the messiness of the lab. It removes the messiness of the work in that detached, passive voice, we language. Yes, yes. I mean, I think anyone who has written a scientific article, including in the social sciences, of course, knows how much gets left out um, and that it is a story that we are telling, uh, an argument that we are making that, of course, um, tells about some things and not others. Mm. Yeah, we're always making choices, aren't mm -hmm. we, in constructing, like really constructing a story, even when it might appear to be about objective facts. Mm -hmm. And particularly this passive voice in, uh, in, in scientific writing, it removes the scientist, it removes the body and the person of the scientist, and it gives this impression that, um, that the world is just being read and understood yes. uh, as if by, by magic, as if by, by God. There's sometimes this idea of the God's eye view, right? Yes. Yeah, and the reality of everyday work, whether it's in the lab or whatever sort of work we're doing, is messy, is mm. working with people, is probably involving arguments or quarrels or whatever the, you know, whatever the local culture is. Yeah, coffee and arguments. Coffee, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and then moving into... Um, the, the 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 social studies of science you know again that's a, probably a closer move but still a move from science communication can you talk about that a bit yeah I, I guess this has been a long journey because I did my PhD in the the center that I did my master's so it was focused around science communication um, so I was using their literature from science communication studies, which is a very interdisciplinary field, but also from science and technology studies. But I hadn't had a lot of training, um, so I always felt that I was catching up mm. um, uh, and was learning. You know, I had to self-educate myself um, quite a bit in terms of social science. I was just going to say, because I guess many of your peers would have had their undergraduate degrees immersed in social sciences. Yes, yeah. So I, I did some, I mean, I, I went to some some master's courses, for instance, to get some familiarity with, with social research. Um, yeah, and then just um, 
also spent a lot of time, I guess, with the literature and seeing what was what was the norms there. Do you see any difference in the way you read that literature? I know that you can't get inside the head of your colleagues, but thinking about colleagues who did come from a more uh, sort of mainstream social sciences background, sitting beside you in the same degree program, did you read the literature or the you know, engage with the ideas differently because you had more of a, a the, the biochemistry background and different sorts of training? I guess it's a little hard to say because we were a tiny, tiny department and a yeah. tiny program. So so there was just two of us while I was oh, okay. there um, <laughs> doing PhDs. Uh, and we had a, you know, we were interested in different things. Mm. Um, I think science communication and more broadly science and technology studies, it is populated by a lot of people with these interdisciplinary mm. backgrounds. So there's also, it didn't feel so unusual, actually, to have this, this mixed background. Yeah. In in all the moves to the UK, US, Denmark, Norway, Austria, has it always been then in STS, science and technology studies departments? No, no. And this is something I feel that I am continuing to be socialized in, actually. So now I am in a science and technology study department for the first time. Oh, uh, first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And teaching on STS, Science Technology Society Masters. So really now I am at the heart of the discipline, we might say. I guess nobody ever really feels that they're at the heart. They always feel that they're on the periphery. But at least I am in a space that is designated that. Whereas previously, I was in a geography department, uh, in a research centre associated with a geography department. I was in another research centre that focused on nanotechnology and society. In Denmark, I was in the department of media cognition and communication, so very interdisciplinary space um yeah so i've been all over that is so diverse you must love learning yes i think you you as an academic it somehow you have to sometimes though i think we love learning going deeper and deeper in our own area and this feels like loving of learning in um I don't, is it making connections or you know, engaging with new areas and look? I don't know, looking for what's interesting. I'm making this up now about <laughs> your own story. Sounds, sounds <laughs> um, I mean, maybe I should say that all of my moves were somehow they had varying degrees of uh, choice in the sense that I have tended to follow where there is interesting uh, work to be done or what was interesting for me at, at a particular moment uh, and this also somehow explains at least some of the mobility that I have uh, prioritized and been able to prioritize oh this is a position that will allow me to do work research that I'm interested in at a particular moment or to work with particular colleagues who, who there are synergies with mm. Uh, and so I've been in these interesting spaces and I've always learned a lot from the people around me. Um, but my own, my own research has kind of, um, yeah, that's been something that's been driving me, I suppose. So the, the, it's not that you're becoming a nanotechnology expert, but rather these moves allow, you know, they provide a context in which you can continue 
your research trajectory? Yes, yeah. I, I mean, there there was a lot of research funding at the time for studies of nanotechnology and society, um, the kind of ethical, legal, social implications of, of that technology. So I was interested in working on questions of public engagement and participation with science and nanotechnology was the place that there were possibilities to do that uh, at that moment. Yeah. So there's an interesting red thread, is it, then, through a lot of the work, the public engagement? It's one red thread, yeah. yeah. And what would be some of the others? So I guess I... Of course, there is always this fiction that we impose order. Oh, no, it is. It is. A, it's always a post hoc rationalization yes, account yes. storytelling in yeah. the same journal writing way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have definitely learned to tell a coherent story. One of which so, is the so the made up story. Yes. Yeah. Of course, it didn't feel like that at mm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the coherent story that I tell is that my research has always been interested in the relationship between science and society. Um, whether that is through the possibilities for deliberation and participation and dialogue um, between publics and and science and scientists, or whether that is the the demands and expectations that society has of science and scientists. So there's a kind of dual interest in how uh, society shapes science and science shapes and is engaged with with society. So the public engagement and deliberation is is one aspect of that, um, an interest in science communication uh, in different forms is another, but then also experiences of people inside the academy. So how do we as academics, how do those working in the natural sciences, how do they experience calls to do more science communication, for instance, or to be engaging in uh, deliberative formats with um, with lay people, or how do they experience calls for, you know, having a good, excellent scientific career, such as being internationally mobile or publishing in particular kinds of journals, these mm. kinds of things. So you, you said it didn't feel like that at the time. You know, so that's a lovely, coherent account, and it's... Um, it re- does reflect back on a lifetime of research to date, doesn't it? But at the time, you know, you said that at, at the time it didn't feel like that. What did it feel like? At different, are there particular points that you can remember? Yeah, I mean, it's of course hard to go back to those moments now from the, the privilege and security of a long-term, a permanent position. I have right. to say I'm sometimes astonished that I... I managed and that many other people managed to kind of cope with the degree of uncertainty that was always present. Um, so I never had a contract for longer, I think, than two and a half years at any time. So even when I was in Denmark for, for seven years altogether, that was through a, a series of shorter term contracts. Um, so I think that was one defining feature that you were always kind of on slightly shaky ground. You were always trying to figure out where the next contract was was coming from. But at the same time, being very self-indulgent in the sense that I knew what I wanted to work on and I was mostly fortunate enough to get positions that allowed me to do that. Um, So I was also, yeah, I had some sense of what was interesting Mm. to me. Yeah, yeah. So even if it wasn't such a 
strong um, narrative account, then there was still a strong sense of what was interesting to you. Yeah, that helped drive the decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And research, I suppose, always yeah. unfolds. Right? It does. It's always kind of. Yeah. Then the next step somehow becomes clear, or mm. a possible next step mm. somehow becomes clear. So I was also, as I went along, finding things that I yeah thought were interesting, or people that I wanted to work with. And that was um, driving some of the choices I made, uh, yeah, exactly around this mobility. Can you speak a bit more about the, I don't know, the, the ability to be mobile? Because that does seem to have been, it sounds quite precarious. We talk about the precarity in academia with people in short-term contracts. And I just realised when you were talking, you know, I was enamoured by the, the the lifestyle and living in these different countries and all these different experiences and that. And I didn't even think in my accounting my own head, listening to you tell the story in the beginning, about that uncertainty behind those moves and the positions and never quite knowing where you'd be in another year at the end after the end of the contract. But there's still something that, you know, you were in a position to be mobile what what were the characteristics for you that were important that enabled you to be mobile or that you were prepared to be mm-hmm. mobile? Yeah, I mean, I have to be very honest. Um, I was I was single. I didn't have a partner um, for for many many years, and this, of course, would have been my trajectory. I think would have been entirely different if yeah. I'd had commitments, you know, a partner, a family, caring responsibilities. Earlier on, um, I was able to move to the U.S. Um, I was able to to come back to Europe mm. um, and, and not be in the U.K. where I'm from. Uh, so this was a possibility that I had um, that is not available uh, to many people. Yeah. And as soon as I, I mean, I have a partner now, we actually met in the U.S. and then um, did kind of long distance relationships um, in various configurations for, for some time, and the choices immediately became much more complicated than um, it's very hard, we discovered, um, to to maintain a, a good relationship where you have, for instance, a nine-hour time difference. Wow, yeah. Somebody is always tired and cranky. <laughs> <laughs> Never you, of course. No, though. no, no. no. <laughs> uh, no. Um, what were the some of the cultural challenges? You know, I, I guess not so much in the everyday living because I know there are challenges there, but particularly within academic context, what were some of the cultural key cultural differences you notice when you reflect back on quite you know that variety of different contexts and mm. countries? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and actually, this also starts to to merge with with research I have done on mobility, uh, academics' experience of mobility, because many of the people that I spoke to talked about these these cultural differences. I mean, for me, I was actually very surprised when I was working in the U.S. that science and technology studies, which was the, the space that I was working in and had been for some time, that it just felt a little bit different. It was It was the same discipline. It was recognizably the same community, but the priorities were slightly different. The things that people were interested in had a slightly different orientation. And this really surprised me because 
I think I still did have this notion of uh, academic knowledge production as this universal space where the same norms apply, where people work in exactly the same way. And I realized that that wasn't entirely true. Not that there was huge differences, but just, as I say, the flavor felt a bit yes. different. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing. I mean, more generally, I, of course, have noticed um, cultural differences around research environments. Um, so a very banal point being, of course, um, in Austria and German language university systems, there is a um, a history, a residue of hierarchy that is not present, for instance, in Scandinavia to the same extent. Um, so there you have very, again, a very banal example, you have very flat salary schemes so that there is not so much difference between what a PhD student and what a full professor is paid. And in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, yes. yeah. And I think this is not so much the case in uh, in other cultures, I mean, it's also not the case in, in the US uh, and here in Austria mm. also. There is, uh, yeah, a hierarchy, I think, encoded more into the uh, the salary scheme as well as into other kind of nuances of how people relate mm. to each other. And, and in our experience, in our, in our university, in the structures of the university and the faculties as well in mm. decision-making and different groups groupings of different levels of people yes yeah definitely so how what is the primary organizing structure is it the the professor the chair um or is it the department or is it some you know when i was in the u.s there were these schools that were totally different again um yeah so i found that to be very different mm. in different places any other you know differences challenges in in shifting different cultural contexts academic contexts mm, i'm sure many um well I, my my key memories i think are of of scandinavia because i was there for eight years altogether and this is uh, an interesting contrast i think again to to austria and germany um there is, of course, a different imagination of work-life balance in Scandinavia. So the work day often starts at 8, but then people leave at 3.30 or 4 to go and collect um, kids from, from school. There is an idea, uh, at least an idea, that it's normal and good to prioritize your family life, to protect your non-working time. Uh, people take uh, long holidays in the summer where you you know go to a summer house um, and of course, this is not to say that people are not working hard because they they are, um, but they are doing so in a in a different way. To uh, again, the U.S. Uh, my experience was that people were just in the office for hours and hours, you know, ten or eleven or twelve hours a day. Mm. This was somehow normalized, uh, and you had to do that if you wanted to to demonstrate your your commitment. So that um, was demonstrate being an interesting word. Yeah, it was not necessarily in my in my view it wasn't always about people being actually productive. It was about performing a particular mm. yeah. And I mean we know the research says that you're actually not productive if you're in the office for 11 12 yeah, hours. I mean, how can you be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, we've got to change that. But anyway, that's that's another that's another story. How, what have you learned about how to 
um, acclimatise isn't the enculturate uh, yourself when you move to new contexts. What do you do practically? Mm, yeah, also interesting, and I guess I am getting out of the. I'm, get, I'm losing the yeah. the ability now. I've yeah. become because you've been here. Do you mean in having been here? Yeah, enough time that it's now you're becoming part of the mainstream or the yeah, norm. Yeah, I, I get used to mm. being settled. I, I think one thing that I can think of that I did learn was to be patient in the sense that it takes time. Uh, in many of the moves that I made, I think I thought, I, after one month, I was frustrated. Oh, this is this is hard. I feel unsettled. I'm not integrating. After three months, I might feel a bit better, but I was, again, frustrated. Uh, even after a year um, or more, I, I would be impatient. And, and so over time, I think I've learned that it just takes mm. time mm. Um, and to expect that and to to know I mean now I've, I've been here in Vienna for three years um, much of that time was during the pandemic so it was also <laughs> special yeah. circumstances but I think yeah okay three years this this feels about the right amount of time to start mm. to feel settled actually mm. What does being settled entail? Like you said, it takes time. I'm curious about it takes time to what? I mean, partly practical things. Yeah. Um, I was always astonished when I moved. Um, yeah, when I, the first moves, when I was more junior uh, and did not have money, for instance, to actually move my stuff with me. So there's always this setting up phase where you just go to IKEA a lot and buy, buy sauce. So pans. you know the IKEA catalogue well. Yes, I mean it's useful and terrifying that you can buy exactly the same kitchen equipment in whatever continent you're on. Um, yeah, so there's kind of practical things. I think, um, yeah, finding a doctor. It always. I really hate going to the dentist. So it always took me a long, long time to figure out how the, the dental system worked in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so those, those things, um, more generally, I think, of course, getting to know colleagues, getting to know the, the research um, that people are doing and the communities that exist in a particular place, and then also this cultural competence of how do universities work, how do institutions think in different places. Mm. And that... I mean, one never totally grasps that. Uh, and I'm not sure that I could claim it for the University of Vienna yet, but um, at least starting to understand some of the, the undercurrents, some of the structures, um, yeah, who you go to for particular questions. Which is really important, isn't it? The, yes. Uh, and it's often not who's on the web page, if, if you can find the web page yes, in yes. the first place. So it is this almost yeah. anthropological experience, I think, <laughs> that you find your informants and you understand, uh, try and understand the culture and the norms and the values. Could we be doing anything differently, given that mobility is, a, uh, I wouldn't say a key part of academia, because not everyone has the flexibility to be mobile, you know, in, to... Not everyone has the flexibility to be mobile in the same ways. But still, I'm wondering, are there things that we could be doing better in training up our PhD students to better equip them to make these moves and to settle more quickly 
or to navigate you know, the challenges around moving. Mm. Yeah, and now I am thinking, of course, there are structural things that universities can do. Uh, University of Copenhagen um, had a big international office that was very efficient. If you were someone from overseas, as soon as you're, you, you know you signed your contract, you were in touch with the international office. They um, provided a lot of support in navigating the bureaucracy, you know, what you have to do, where you have to register. Um, they also provided, you know, social activities, um, support with language learning, uh, really a whole infrastructure around um, getting people embedded in the university and also in the, the culture. Uh, so that was really powerful, uh, also as a means of meeting other people in similar situations. Um, so, so that for me was very useful. There were also there uh, activities for, for partners, for families. Um, so I think that was a big support for those people who did have um, people coming with them into a totally new context. I mean, more generally, more broadly, one thing that I've thought a lot about is what we mean when we talk about internationalization uh, and the value of mobility and engaging with, with different research cultures and spaces. Um, I, I mean, my, my trajectory was precarious, but I have to say I also hugely enjoyed the possibility to be mobile, to live in these really different places to get to know different people, different cultures, uh, to travel. This for me was was a huge um, pleasure and, and privilege, but I also know that it is something that is simply not possible for, for many people, and, and many people don't, don't want that, these kind of long stays of years in different countries. So I, I think a lot about how can we acknowledge the value of engaging in different ways of doing research, different cultures, how can we get experience of science in other places and build networks without demanding that people do this? So how can we reimagine internationalization in a way that is perhaps more friendly to people with responsibilities and commitments? Can we think about um, shorter stays uh, over, you know, repeated shorter stays over a period of time? Can we think about other ways of creating um, networks. Uh, and this was something that came up, actually. When I was in Denmark, there was a huge push um, to, to internationalize the, the research system, and it meant that many funders uh, demanded, really, that people were mobile after their PhDs. So if you wanted postdoc funding at that time in Denmark from, from many of the funders, they would only do that. They would only give that if you went abroad. So people were, were required, really, to go abroad for two or three years. Um, and this, of course, frustrated many people um, who wanted a scientific career, who were good at, at research, but um, either really didn't want to or, or just couldn't. Couldn't, exactly. Um, yeah, Well-intentioned but unintended consequences and yes. impacts. Yeah, so they were cut off from... Uh, from yeah, from access to this funding stream and thereby into um, into permanent jobs because the permanent jobs also mm. generally required that you'd worked some time overseas. Um, so, I mean, many of them experienced that and talked about it as a kind of equity issue. This is unjust. Yeah. Um, so in that regard, it, it seems 
to me also important to to both acknowledge the value of international engagement again it's something i got huge amounts from mm. but to think about how we can make yeah. it more, more equitable yeah so it's an, another interesting dimension of diversity isn't it about mm. um picking up on our well-intentioned plans but stepping it up a level to think about how do we enable access to the value of those plans in diverse ways and not so easy to solve actually because um, because I also I, I mean I can see that there is these strategies like shorter stays but I have to say there is something totally different you know really just being in a place yeah. that's also an interesting aspect with the shorter stays given that you said that it takes time and you need patience to get into it yeah so there are these interesting trade-offs yes Always trade-offs. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure how one can resolve that other than flexibility and what we expect of people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just reminded of some of the emerging initiatives like the Coara Agreement at the European level about uh, relying on more qualitative assessments of research and and researcher profiles and that, and how these are some of the more subtle factors that we need to take account of in interpreting someone's CV about whether they were in a position to be mobile, to build those networks or to have that international experience. Yeah, and I think it would be great to normalise more explicit consideration of that. I was I was really impressed recently. I was involved in a, a recruitment process and I noticed that one or two people had a kind of um, corona statement on their CVs, like, okay, uh, I was in this position, but I had these responsibilities, and this, of course, has shaped what I was able to do. And I think if we could do that, I, I mean, again, just be a little more honest yes, in, our, yeah. in our accounts yeah. of our careers, yes. um, it would be great to see uh, the conditions that people have been working under and the constraints and opportunities they had. Um, just as I, I mean, I should be able to say it's a hugely privileged position for me I, that to be so flexible and this has given me an advantage that that others didn't have yeah yes I'd, I'd love us to be more honest about that and also the framing I've you know just supporting a couple of people writing up job applications recently who were trying to in a way account for gaps because of having kids or then coming back to work in the middle of China, of corona and having to put a whole lot of effort into teaching and so on. Um, it was really difficult to, for them to find a way to communicate that in a positive way. So the first draft didn't acknowledge it at all in a way, like just glossed it over. And then the second account tried to do it, but did it in an apologetic way, you know, like, oh, yeah, it wasn't very good. And we eventually got somewhere that was saying, and look at what I was still able to do given these circumstances. So the, the I don't know, just the, the telling, again, that narrative construction and the telling of our own stories in giving those accounts, I think, needs we need to be better at that. Mm. In, so in both in being honest and framing it, not being hard on ourselves for what we missed in that, but what we've been able to do. And, and wouldn't it be great if we collectively as an academic community were also 
celebrating and appreciating those kinds of experiences. I mean, you mentioned teaching. I think if we valued teaching yes. and excellence and commitment to teaching as much as we, we often do, um, you know, research output, um, then we would, yeah, look for different things and we would really be able to appreciate the the experiences and the, the knowledge that people bring who, you know, have had to spend a lot of time teaching, um, yeah, I guess this is also a point about diversity and what we value. It is. It is. And that people have different shaped careers and you know, get excited about different things. So you didn't get excited about sitting in a lab and pipetting. <laughs> um, but you get excited about other things. And when that fits into a research trajectory, it fits the current academic narratives around what, what is an excellent academic and if it fits into a teaching trajectory, it, at the moment many institutions value that less, as you say. Mm -hmm. And again, there are encouraging moves that some people are trying to shift that. I think it'll take a while. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, this also relates very much to these discourses of excellent research and what we mean by excellence. Um, because I think even with, within research, there are, of course, some notions of what makes something excellent. Yes, pathbreaking or uh, super innovative or um, results in uh, spin-out companies and other kinds of research that are framed as less excellent that is maybe slower or uh, engaged with communities that is uh, really working with people on the ground or is action-oriented and again wouldn't it be nice if we could diversify that imagination of excellence yeah and in, in that as well, appreciating the different timeframes and, and uh, involved in producing that work. So if you're doing something that's more action research and engaged in participatory ways with communities, it's going to be a much slower progress in terms of getting to whatever paper you might end up writing compared to running a, an experiment in a lab setting where you can control all the factors. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, how we account, how we allow people to engage in research that have these different time frames, different output patterns, you know, and again, like I think that's a diversity issue. Yeah, as yeah, you said. and and how we acknowledge research that doesn't. I mean, as you say, the the time frame can't be a two or three year project. It mm. has to be a longer term. Uh, engagement with a community that mm. is not perhaps easily funded through third-party uh, resources. How do we um, yeah, really value that? Mm. And that's another interesting shaping influence, isn't it? The third-party resources, the brownie tick of I've acquired research funding on your CV. Yeah, yeah. there's this, this nice term of projectification that I really like um, because it does, I think, at least partly describe what is happening to research or what has happened to research over the last decades that we now think of scholarly production as happening through projects and rather through careers or um, some other structuring device. So a research, research is done through projects that are two or three or five years, but that are delimited and uh, have distinct research questions and, and all these kinds of things. I haven't heard of that term before. Can you tell is, tell us more about it, where it came from, or how people are working with it? Yeah, I, now of course I forget the the reference, um, but I can send it to you. Yeah, we can put it in the on the web page. Yeah, yeah, because um, 
it, it comes from from a couple of people who have looked exactly at temporalities of of academic work and and the shift uh, to a project logic uh, where yeah you have to design a piece of research that that fits into a certain time frame even though again we all know it doesn't work like that and you will be publishing from it for a time afterwards uh, at least um but that it is actually a totally different logic to older imaginations of scholarship um perhaps particularly in the humanities and social sciences but i think also in the natural sciences where really um this was something that unfolded over many years it was not oriented to um packages of funding uh, that you know you got resources for uh but that was much less tightly delimited and was rather yeah something that just unfolded um, mm. i think that's a bad a bad actually a bad summary of this work so i have no, to send you the but, reference I'll, i'll be curious to read that but it's still a really important valid point I, I, one of the more recent uh, conversations with stuart reeves where he was saying the nature of his research he actually doesn't need big amounts of money you know to do it but the the pro- i don't know the valuing of the projectification that's a hard word to say uh in cvs and when you're going for promotions and that means that he ought to be in mm. some way mm-hmm. applying for that funding what do you think could be some new funding models if we were to move away from this you know sole focus on projects as ways of supporting research through funding mechanisms through our funding bodies i mean i think this is something actually you probably know much more about at the moment in terms of current discussions of um funding and evaluation uh, one very simple thing structural thing is that uh, perhaps we should just have more uh, permanent positions at a range of levels um so that we are not working in a system where we have professors um in some places lecturers senior lecturers who have um permanent posts and then much of their research is done through people on short term positions um which is funded through through projects i think these this project <laughs> projectification now I'm making it hard yeah. for all of us <laughs> this this thing um i mean this somehow goes hand in hand with the the way in which we now have many many people on short term precarious positions both in teaching but also perhaps especially in in research um i mean if we resort how research was done um and said no there are there are other kinds of long-term positions other than for professors where we would want to support people and 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 value the work that they're doing i think this would immediately shift the mm. the temporalities of of research because people would have more of an outlook you wouldn't only Absolutely. have a, a postdoc fellowship for three or even five years um you would be able to really invest in something that was a much longer term form of research yeah. or engagement with a topic or yeah. question and we're still asking people who've been in these precarious positions to do this coherent post hoc reframing of their research trajectory and often they've been in positions where they haven't really been in control of the work that they're doing just because they need a job and i know that you know the 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 trick is trying to shape what you have to deliver on in a way that also meets your interests but 
It's, a, it's hard work. Okay, it's so cynical, isn't it? Why yeah. should we force people? I mean, I have, of course, just done this in telling my, my neat red thread trajectory. I've imposed some order on a, on a career that was, that, that was often projects. Um, uh, but, but it seems very cynical to ask people to do that. Um, and, and I think also very unfair. I've, I've seen people, again, in recruitment positions, kind of criticized for, you know, working on different topics. Uh, and again, well, they couldn't leave a place. They they needed to be working in a particular region, and they they took what was available. Which goes back to being much more generous in reading and interpreting people's CVs and career trajectories as we see them presented there, mm-hmm. and all the factors that go into it beyond within their control and beyond their control. Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess again valuing. I mean, so if you are working on different projects with different people. Uh, maybe you don't have this neat um, line of research, this neat research program, but I guess you were very good at doing teamwork, uh, collaborating, at learning new things rather quickly, and, mm. and so seeing the value of that. Mm. I know that some of these new um, agreements or you know, new, new approaches to research evaluation call us to focus not so much on people's background and what they've done but rather their um, experience more generally and what their potential is and whether the question's interesting and that would if if we could take those calls more seriously that might also help Mm -hmm. as well yeah but it needs those of us who are sitting around the table making these decisions to actually ask those questions or to read in different ways yeah 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 so one, getting to this now, one of the main triggers for wanting to talk to you, and, and you've alluded to this as we've gone through, is in, in one of the strands in looking at science and society, you said, is the inside perspective of um, academics engaging in their scientific work and engagement with society. And you gave this brilliant inaugural lecture, finally, many years after starting here, that was called Knowing Through Digital Practices or How to Be an Academic. And you've also uh, had a project that I found really interesting about life in science and narrating career trajectories in research. Can you, you know, talk more generally or can you talk about what some of that those strands have been and what some of the interesting insights, understandings of academic life career trajectories have been for you. And this is where we'll pick up again in part two, where we go on to discuss this research. So I really hope you'll join us for part two. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.